Hello everyone and welcome to episode 4 of season 2 of Ignite the Flame Audio. Such a privilege to have you tune in to this episode. As always, if you're new here, I would encourage you to go back to the start of season 2. And if you're interested in the book reading side of this podcast, I would encourage you to go all the way back to the beginning of season 1 so that these readings will make chronological sense. But for those of you who are already aware of how we conduct an episode... You know pretty much what to expect by this point. We have a chapter read to you during the episode. Then we have a section known as the origin of ideas, where we break down the inspirations behind that chapter. Then we go into a section known as tips of the trade. For those of you who are aspiring to be authors yourselves, or those of you who are already authors that are just looking for that little bit extra. So I won't keep you any longer. Let's go ahead and get into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Scarcrow Chapter 4 A Darkness Past Awaken, my brother, and witness your true purpose. I say calling Shadow into life once more, and proclaiming his torturous intent. He looks unto my stare, fearful at first, but soon in recognition of a face once known. Hello, brother. I have need of you. Whilst gripping his throat and pinning him against the table as my ravens restrain him with belts and shackles now twisting and contorting his appendages, bending them to my whim. What do you want from me? Shadow screams, as though to flee from his body and attempt to escape via a dream state. But what he was soon to realize was that the dream would turn into a nightmare. Edward Steeple, you are fond of theft and petty crimes, are you not? What of it? But that is not why you have been summoned here to my asylum. No, this... Is the reason. Do you recognize it? I hold it to his eye, so he can obtain a decent view of its contents. A test tube filled with sulfur by the smell of it. And is is that coffee? Very good, Edward. Sound familiar, brother. You are no brother of mine. If I remember correctly, you left us, Scarcrow. Silence! I cloud him across the face, backdrafting his words into the depths of his skull. Do you recognize it, Edward? Shadow. Oh, very well. Maintain your silence. It matters not. For I will extract it from you, one way or another. As I pull a chain to his left, a blade begins to swing back and forth, all the while his appendages being secured to a mechanism long since forgotten. What is this? Scarcrow? 1628 was the last use of the rack. A vile contraption which pulls the appendages to the point of dislocation. But I have taken the liberty of making a few improvements. You see, every time your appendages are pulled, this pendulum lowers. And as your posture is straightened, your ribcage distends. The rest I leave to you. 
you are truly deranged, and your followers, they, they heed your every call. I pity them. Pity them all you desire. They will still carve your torso open at my command to see how dark your heart truly is. You wouldn't try me, brother. Remember what I am capable of when Bloodsnitch is around. Without us, you would not have your life, nor your followers. On the contrary, I have devoted legions at my disposal as I serve them, and they me in turn. We look out for each other, something your creed would do well to learn, should it wish to rally more to its cause. You can't make me talk. The initiation of silence. Remember? As my mind casts back. Behold, brother, Scarcrow, the vow of silence, your final trial, one of endurance, fortitude, and the will to survive. You will be immersed in water, slowly brought to boiling point but not enough to kill. Then you will be placed into a bath of ice and nails. Should you survive this, you will be tortured further with bones broken and scars made, molten iron and some more primitive devices used. Survive that without shedding a word, and you will be one of us. Almost. Almost. There is but one more oath to swear your allegiance. But first... And if I fail... You will be initiated again, and so forth. Death or success, one will occur eventually. Not a word. No word at all. Are you ready? I am. My eyes open. Oh, I remember. But I won't use pain to extract it. There is only so much physical torment a body can take. But psychological, it is almost endless. After all, how do you think monsters such as myself are made? The blade splits the skin of his ribcage, cutting a few inches deep into his sternal area. Please, have mercy! Mercy is for those ordained by God, and I am not he. But as you are a brother, I will allow you the opportunity to tell me who is supplying sulfur and coffee to the criminal element of this city. I don't know exactly who... I think I, I may know who makes the orders for the vial to be concocted. That's a start. Go on. Well, you know how this works. I do something for you, and what not. Very well, brother. Have it your way. As I raise the pendulum and drive my syringe into his neck, delivering my own potent mix of a hundred milliliters of water, part liquid methanol and the smallest pinch of psilocybin, now coursing through his veins, altering reality as it travels, impeding the brain's frontal cortex and causing phantasm and other delirious visions consuming him in fear, paranoia and rage now birthing within his head. A weak potion alone, but then I combine it with its counterpart, a puff of gas one meter squared, consisting of cigarette smoke, which acts to bring the psilocybin into performance when usually it would lie dormant in his subconscious. Releasing the pressurized canister on my left arm, the smoke is inhaled into his lungs, and his eyes react almost instantly, convulsing and beginning to writhe in pain, slowly succumbing to its hallucinogenic effect. What have you done? 
Who are you? What do you want from me? Where am I? <laughs> oh, oh my, my goodness. What the hell are you? <laughs> his voice undergoes states, as his mood differs, struggling to remain still and awake from the sheer violence of his reaction. Listen to me, my lantern. You need to shine from within these pumpkin walls and radiate the truth outward. Tell me who provided the underworld with the sulfur and coffee vial. I don't know who he is, but I know where to find him. The dark corner on Black Street. There is a bar across from it. He regularly attends there. Please, let me sleep, Master. Let me sleep, oh, please. Shh. Peace, brother. You are in safe hands. As I administer a sedative, rendering him asleep enough to remember all which occurred next, I remove my mask and misplace my gauntlets, taking a breath in as my eyes draw to a close. My ravens scatter his body to the outcasts and then return to me. I have need of you. And where will you go, doctor? I must retain my inspector's intrigue, lest he become suspicious. He can't see what occurs here. He would not understand. No one could ever understand. And what they would do to me. Well, it will be done, Doctor. As my ravens enshroud the body and begin to load him into a cart, just out of the back entrance, ready to leave him at the mercy of the outcasts. As I open my compass, with its face of silver and brown, no dials, just memory. The outcasts are a creed of vigilantes, all attempting to make a difference through theft and deception. A group I had come to know in leaving Bloodsnitch, betwixt the years of 1893 and 95. They took me in, trained me in arts deemed criminal, and taught me to survive unimaginable conditions. I owed my life to them, that is, once I did. But after pledging allegiance and ridding them of their rival group, the allegiance was now mine to command. Bloodsnitch had once called me their own. But if they were involved in this, then I had to stop them no matter what it took. Else the world, as I knew it, may well be lost. As my ravens disappear into the smog of the night, I return to the house at 172 Regent Street, and it welcomes me in. Its door opening almost by itself, as if to pave the way for me to inspect its interior. I move forward and to the left into the dining room, past the central staircase separating the house in two. The chandelier in the ceiling's midpoint glistens in artificial light, and transposes iridescence onto sections of the walls, enlightening veneer furniture of the finest quality. Indicative of wealth, tartan rugs and carpets of silk were possibly imported from the areas of the empire and the connection it provided us to other nations, despite being their overlords. The floor, a polished oak and skirting of whitened panes bordering the walls ornate papering of floral design, and exotic birds with extended beaks unknown to me, but known to science, I was sure. Ah, the doctor returns, and just in time. I've done all I can do for the day, so I'll be returning home to my wife. I had no idea you were married, Inspector. I'm not, but for the right price, I can come close, Doctor, with a sinister grin of lust betraying his intention to me. And before I can silence myself, I proclaim... Be sure you will not only burn yourself, but those poor girls as well. Their blood is on your hands. Later pulling the scarf to my nose, 
and preventing myself from saying any more scandalous thoughts toward my superior. Well, Doctor, we all need voice in our lives, once in a while. Or else, what would be the point in working so hard? Material going? No, for recognition from a woman, who will show it, no matter what your achievement? A piece of flesh to be toyed with, and traded as our master commands. <laughs> Before I can silence myself once more, this time I take to action grabbing the inspector by the scruff of the neck and pinning him against the wall, tighter and tighter until I relinquish him. Before I can apologize, he states, clutching his neck, Just remember your plies, doctor. <clears throat> and then takes his leave to his palace of immorality. A voice in my head declares, The fires in which he walks will consume him, and all he touches but you are only he who can witness it, for he is blind to their truth. And I find myself answering, I know, all will burn for their immorality, even us. As I search for evidence to redeem my actions, I find a single hair, blonde in coloration, followed by several cigarette ends, despite Mr. Hard not possessing any nicotine in his lungs, which would coincide with a smoker. A set of playing cards, organized into four on the table, and a purse of white and lilac, concealing several sovereigns of varying editions, some with their faces missing, perhaps telling of gambling. Either way, these all were leads which the inspector would follow, leading to the culprit and inevitably their apprehension on weight. Something else is here. The first instance, and I cannot remember what it is, I open the bag of leather and blink as my mask begins to breathe and swell, calling me back into its service as if my mind was never my own. Release me. Like a slave, I follow blindly and place it over my head, opening my eyes to the mystery which had enthralled my brain and caused such confusion. Ah, yes, that is it. But where is it now? Later seeing the item in question, replaced with a tissue covered in bloody fingerprints, belonging to one who had yet to be revealed. What was there before? I mention, as though the mask would answer, reverting the images back, retracting the gaseous forms to reveal a compass which had been left in its place by the victim. Upon removal of the mask, I witnessed the tissue of blood upon the table's corner, detailing the mark of the murderer. But how careless would you have to be? An attempt to frame another, or perhaps a new hand with little experience or knowledge of their methods. Whatever the case, the race was on to find who these fingerprints belonged to, in addition to the cigarette ends and playing cards, which would also hold markings, but whether they would be the same, it was only a matter of time. I collect samples from each, containing and preserving each minute detail to the best of my abilities. Test tubes filled with their contents, magnesium ore, used to ascertain fingerprints, and place them upon marked paper deciphering their unique code. I would need to return to the asylum in order to study what I had found, leading potentially to the murderer, and perhaps uncovering a darker mystery hidden within. I loosen the mask from my head once again, and sheath it into my bag of varying tools toward my profession, ranging from lockpicks to globes, which were for more of a sinister purpose. Good. I am finished now. Ensure no one touches the scene in any way 
and all that you see remaining here. Is that understood? With all due respect, sir, I only take commands from Inspector Moore. Well, if you wish to see your home later this evening, you will protect this scene, especially from him. Are you suggesting? Do you value your life, Constable? Aye, sir, uh, of course. Well then, you will guard this scene. Understood? Aye, sir. Understood. Good. Now return to your post and alert me. If any changes occur, you know where I will be. Aye. Have a good evening, sir. As I leave the premises under a shroud of darkness and flicker through the night. My head is as a lantern, illuminating until just out of sight of the constable. Placing my hand upon the door of my home, I push to open its rickety boards and reveal it to be pre-opened rather than locked to the world's own. Strange, I thought. Doctor, we have returned and have much to tell you. In time, my ravens. Now, flee and return to me by morning. It can wait until then, can it not? Yes, Doctor. Sleep well, Master. As they close the doors upon me, I am left in the dark with my own thoughts and visions, staring blankly into the abyss I once knew as death. So pure, so incorruptible and innocent, but revealed to be hollow and not but ash in my hands, consuming all I once held dear. However, I focus on the night's production, and use the light of the moon to conduct experiments, testing and comparing marks with file upon file from the constabulary's seemingly endless library, courtesy of Inspector Moore. Always granting himself access to my asylum, the fingerprints lift with ease, and lipstick, found on the cigarette ends, reveal a sodium tinge, giving a pale coloration and almost whitened appearance to the overall red coloration. A woman was involved with the card game, and played alongside Mr. Hard, with two others, whose prints I had yet to determine. Something is wrong. The tissue does not match anyone, until I open the folder containing each officer's own markings, which lead me to one name, but it appeared too much of a coincidence. Falsely accused once, I was not about to trial him once more. I was all too aware of how much this dear friend has already lost. It wasn't about to take his freedom a second time. Something was wrong, and I would be the one to decipher it, as it became clear to me that this case was a construct for my former brothers in order to obtain the final piece of their elite class set. A plan for domination which had been foretold for centuries since its birth. But if I was to stand against them, I would need to solve this case and find what it is they wanted with him. Only then could I help and pursue my true intention to bring justice to those who deem themselves above the law, even if it meant a similar fate to those who had fallen before me. A match with the fingerprints to a Mr. Sedgwick and Mr. Biggs, both worthy members of the local council, ensuring the future of this street and many others like it. The last print belonging to a Mrs. Amers, a rich owner of a steel refinery in the London Docklands, who had a record for employing child labor, and suffered several charges as a result. These were my intended leads, and I would judge them all in turn. But first, I would need rest, for the day had brought with it a larger scheme than even I was fully aware of, and if I were to face it, I would need all the strength I had, including my soul.
as I grip my cross hanging around my neck, I utter a prayer for my redemption before closing my eyes to sleep. For if I could not try to reach him despite my actions, what hope was there to ever reach him? At the end, when it mattered so much to me, as he was the only one left to me, and without him, I had no purpose, no faith, no reason to burn or fight for this city I called home. A nightmare of days long gone, yet feel as only yesterday. Patience induced in water torture, shock therapy, and my own twisted invention. The dragon's tongue torture device. One of metal boards and a rotating wheel, which lowered the patient over a flame. Their appendages clamped and holes strategically placed in preparation to thrust molten rods through their body, causing them the maximum amount of pain, whilst belittling the chance of infection. A means I used to acquire confessions for justice had not been dealt. In the cases of these men, they only saw fit to use their mental instability as an excuse not to serve for their crimes. And it worked on the judges of this world. But I was judge here, and this was not their world. I assure you, I had witnessed so many loosened from the gallows due to mental commitment, but I ensured them be transferred to my asylum so as justice be served accordingly. A process which saw me face the gallows myself on several occasions. Dr. Lantern, you attest to treating these men, do you not? Yes, I do. And you are well educated in their treatment techniques. I am. Then explain to me why it has come to the knowledge of this court that these men were found in a worse state than when first placed in your care. The mind deteriorates with time, and they are no exception. Do you admit to torturing these men, doctor? I do not. Then tell me what it is you do to cure them of their ailment. I induce methodologies one could consider inhuman to drive the mind into a natural state, to reveal what lies behind the lies, as it were. The truth through fear. Exactly. Doctor, I submit to you that you torture these men and condemn them to death for crimes for which they have been proven innocent, and it is because of your own unfortunate event with the law that drives you to commit such action. How do you respond to that? If you deem me a murderer for condemning these men to death and wish me to be hung as a result, prosecutor, then you will join me along with your jury and his honor as you yourselves commit the same such act, committing me for crimes yet unproven. Your honor, pay him no mind. Dr. Lantern specializes in the mind and knows all too well how to manipulate, as he is doing now. Is my logic in question? Prosecutor, I ask the questions here, Doctor. Now, if you are to condemn me to death for curing disease such as mental extremes, then you are to condemn every doctor in London, including those present here, are you not? As the roar of the crowd becomes uncontainable. Order! Order! Silence in my courts! Prosecutor, you are making a mockery of my court, and I am well inclined to have you removed. Your Honor... If you would let me explain. Nonsense. You are falsely accusing Dr. Lantern for curing these patients, and just because his methods are unorthodox, you deem him a criminal. Well, I won't stand for it any longer. You clearly know little about what Dr. Lantern does, 
and this is the third personal vendetta you have tried on this fine gentleman. Therefore, I deem this case dismissed, and Dr. Lantern, you may leave the stand. Prosecutor, you may leave your belongings at the door. Get out! Case dismissed! As I close my eyes to winning another case, through the very manipulation the prosecutor had spoken of, I hear Father Thomas call to me. Jack, wake up. Jack, wake up. Night passes into daylight, and I am overwhelmed by a light which blinds my aching eyes to their core, burning its impression upon my redness, leaving hues of blue and green. Sitting up from my slumber, I leave my legs over the side of my operating table, on which so many had laid before, awaiting vivisection. I search for my shirt upon a hanger, whilst revealing my scarred torso, the musculature well defined in my abdomen, and pectoral areas, biceps and triceps veined with purpose, and ribs almost extruding from my cadaver, encasing a pair of healthy lungs, but only just. Scarred tissue from my neck toward my shoulders leaves an invisible layer of pale across my body, as that of a garment specifically to cover that of a battle cloak. I place the shirt on with left arm through first, followed by the second, with a great deal of discomfort. The black cotton surrounding my shoulders reminding me of my allegiance to the dark, and reminding me of my place amongst this flock. I button my shirt from south to north, hiding once more that which brought great shame to me, adorning my waistcoat and overcoat. My ravens return with news of the fallen shadow. Doctor, we have news for you. Yes, my ravens. Do tell me, what do you have? Well, Doctor, Edward mentioned that he was hired by the leader of the Blackstreet Gang to steal the compass for a rival cult group and replace it with the tissue you found. He also mentioned that the leader was working for someone else. A third person, if you will. Any ideas on who the third man is? He failed to mention, Doctor. Very good, my ravens. Now scatter. I have work to conduct under the mask of daylight and my public profession. Return to me tonight, and we will conduct our own investigation into what Bloodsnitch is up to under the mask of night. Did you wish us to inform anyone of your intentions? No. No one must know of this. Especially those in the constabulary. Understood. Understood, Doctor. Come, brothers. Let us flee. As they ushered themselves from the room in response to my command, you would better stay here, and I will return when I have need of you. I mention, as I leave the mask behind the cabinet, and return the gauntlets to be refueled with the deadly concoction, waiting for nightfall once more to show a new face of justice. I attend to the only place where the inspector could be this time of the morning. The crying rose brothel in the east end of London. A plague-infested, disease-ridden manifest of imprisonment and damnation, condemning all souls who enter to a slow and weakening demise. Male and female. A place I had called home between 86 and 90, the Ripper years, as they were to be called. I had witnessed all too many laid before me upon my table, expressing the darker side of passion, eaten alive by their desires, and having no idea as to its source. There is a reason why we must only be as one flesh with another. As we move from host to host, so too do our deceptions and sins pursuing us. 
following us, never leaving us until we cease and step no further. We may try to outrun it, but it will find us and catch us. Be sure of that. We must stop now, if not for our own sake, for the others around us. This journey was especially difficult for me, as most of these girls I knew as friends once, all with promise and dreams, but drawn into this widow's snare and never released. As I cast my mind back to ten years ago, I recall meeting the girls of the Crying Rose Brothel and growing alongside them for four years, with Scarcrow filling passionate gaps where I was too afraid to tread, becoming intimate with the brothel's majority, much to my great shame whilst portraying a gentleman's manner of deception and trickery. At one point, gracing Violet, Rose, Tulip, and Daffodil at a similar time, with an evening of debauchery and lust, with my dark side as its sole proprietor. I witness each of them going deeper and more entangled by the day, and nothing I say can shake their belief. All I can do for them now is comfort them until they draw their last breath condemning another soul to fill their newly surrendered fate. I knock upon the door, and Alicia opens to reveal Violet and Rose dressed for festivities ruin, already preparing for their siren's call to fall upon an unweary traveler. Morning, ladies. Do you know where I can find the inspector anywhere? Yes. Dr. Lantern, he is upstairs, just finishing up, I believe with deadly nightshade. Our newest girl, Deadly Nightshade, a name I knew all too well. We had courted in years past, and destiny marked us for matrimony, but it was not to be. As Bloodsnitch called, and love was to be left behind, leaving those three words, I love you, to be twisted into, why, Scarcrow, why? An interesting name, though a fitting description. Oh. Doctor, you worry too much about us all. If you are not careful, we may start to think you have a heart. You flatter me, ladies. But keep low to the ground, as I may require your services further for a colleague of mine. Winking to them, as if to signal an acquiring of information in exchange for free medicinal examinations. Oh, yes. Tell Scarcrow we welcome him here any time, and if you wish... He can even meet the new girl. Let us not place temptation in his way, Alicia. I can barely control him. As it is. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we discuss the ideas that were presented to you in the chapter and break them down. Getting started, the first point we see in this chapter is the use of primitive torture devices to manipulate people into confession. So Scarcrow mentions the use of the rack, the last use, recorded use that is, being 1600s, early 1600s. This is taken from, in essence, the Saw franchise. For any of you horror fans, um, you would have seen the Saw franchise and you'll know that how Jigsaw brings across his own brand of justice, so to speak, but it's more of like a twisted, perverted version of, of vengeance more than justice but it's done in such a way that it reminds people of what they've done and it sort of uses that fear of death to evoke almost the confession of their wrongdoings and we sort of use a similar process 
for Scarcrow in the sense that he uses primitive means to extract their confessions. Now, obviously, in today's modern judicial system, these confessions wouldn't hold up because they're done under duress. So they would just be thrown out of court. But back in the Victorian age, confessions were still extracted under primitive procedures. Uh, Forced confessions were still common. So we take that and use it to our advantage. The second point is we're introduced to a group known as the outcasts. Now, these are a group of vigilantes, as Scarcrow describes, that are part of his past. They form Scarcrow's past and they fill the years between his becoming of Scarcrow and where we find him in the beginning of this story. There's sort of a lot that's happened in the formation of this character, a lot that's happened in the interim period. And the outcasts are one of those groups that have been fundamental in the formation of the character of Scarcrow. The third point sort of follows on from that in the sense that we're exposed to flashbacks of Scarcrow and otherwise Dr. Lantern's past. Now, what we try to do is tell these moments within the story, sort of like anyone who's seen the series of Arrow, DC's Arrow. You'll notice that the character of Oliver Queen, his past is told throughout at least the first five seasons through flashbacks that occur quite frequently throughout the episode. And they sort of help to give backdrop not only on his past as a character, but also it relates to what he's coming up against during that season or during that episode. And we sort of try to do the same thing for Scarcrow and Dr. Lantern in this book, which is why it seems that, especially in this chapter, we're sort of jumping from the present day back in time to when he's swearing allegiance to Bloodsnitch, you know, going through the Oath of Silence. And then it comes back to the present day. And then we're jumping back in time again, revisiting when he was taken to court for the procedures which he conducts involving the torturing of criminals that have been deemed insane by the justice system. The fourth point is that Scarcrow as a character represents this alter ego. It represents the darker allure of humanity's more primitive side. It's sort of a reflection based on our first novel of A Light in the Mist, where it shows the sort of origin story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's sort of a similar premise to that that we see in this chapter and throughout this entire novel, that Scarcrow represents the darker side to which Dr. Lantern is almost too afraid to go. So if he needs to apprehend someone, like in this chapter we see the apprehension of Shadow and the willing to torture Shadow for a confession, Dr. Lantern in his own self would not be able to submit to these types of behaviour. But in putting that mask on and surrendering himself to that darker side... He's able to go where he would not normally be able to go. And we see that sort of added upon toward the end of the chapter where he describes that even when he was growing in the Crying Rose brothel, he grew up alongside the girls that attended there. And as a gentleman, he was not able to commit himself to the inhabitants of the Crying Rose brothel. But with Scarcrow, he could take part in any deviance he wished because it was not a direct tarnish on his reputation. It was almost a way to dissociate himself from those more primitive behaviours. So in every sense, the mask or Scarcrow as a character represents wanting to dissociate oneself from the darker side or the more primitive side then of humanity. It's sort of the human condition, if you will. The final point is another reference to film. 
For those of you who have joined us throughout the previous episodes, you'll know that we're always including references to various films, music, games, as we're sort of going through the writing process, and sometimes they end up finding themselves in subsequent chapters. This is exactly the same. There's a line that says, Hollow and not but ash. Now, this is a direct reference to Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Uh, there's a moment where Davy Jones is answering about Calypso, and he mentions... Not a person, a heathen god, one who delights in cursing men with her wildest dreams and revealing them not to be hollow but not but ash. The world is well rid of her. And in saying, that's one of like the most pivotal moments that stuck out to me in World's End, um, which is why it ended up finding itself in this subsequent chapter. Okay, so that about sums it up for this section. So let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, as it says, this is the section of the podcast where we discuss tips of the trade. For those of you who are aspiring to be authors, or those of you who are already authors, just looking for that little bit extra. So in today's episode, we're going to be covering the subject of dialect. Now, in the following episode, we'll then have a tip section on dialogue. So we sort of thought it'd be better to sort of break those two down and sort of do them over two episodes rather than try to jam them into one. With dialect, obviously it's sort of part and parcel of the speech element to your characters. As you're creating characters, obviously you've, you've already gone through the process of describing your character, you've gone through the process of building your character physically, but now it comes to actually giving them a voice. Now, with the dialect, there are several things you can do uh, to make this character as real as possible. Now... We've mentioned this in previous episodes about people watching where you can go to a public place and you can watch how people behave, like their mannerisms, but you can also listen to the way that they converse with each other. This will be represented in dialect in the sense that some people you will have educated people. Like often I get told that I'm posh, even though like I couldn't be as far, I, I'm probably as far from posh as possible, but because I have a, what I, what others would consider an extensive vocabulary, it makes me sound posh. It's like Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry, like, uses so many big words that it makes him sound like the world's biggest genius. I mean, of course he is. But what I'm saying is it all depends on the dialect. And obviously, the more educated your character is, the more that they'll come across with a more extensive vocabulary. It You know, their sentences will sound like you've plucked it out of the Oxford Dictionary. As opposed to a character who perhaps refers to using slang. So if you have a character which is someone who's been born on the streets or, or someone who's sort of roughed it in, in sort of like a rough area or something like that, or just uses it for the sheer hell of it. Dialect is a way by which you can communicate the slangs of that time. Now, what you'll be surprised with, as I was when we conduct historical research, is that slang terms have been used throughout human history, you know, as far back as you go, even to the medieval times, People were still using slang phrases, uh, especially in the city of London, to describe things. You know, um, I think it was back in the 1920s. If you refer to a police officer as a celery, you got arrested for it. And it's like, I, I don't even know what that means. But yeah, apparently in the 1920s, it was an offensive phrase because it was a slang term. You go even into like Cockney rhyming slang and even with the modern day, a lot of modern terms that are used by sort of the younger generation of today, even their slang has developed massively compared to, say, 10 years ago. 
it pays to sort of know sort of the opposite ends of dialect in the sense when you're creating your character. Pronunciation is also key in the sense of dialect. So if you're using, this is more in the sense of when you're using like words from a different language. Where we see this is like in Agatha Christie's Poirot. Normally he sort of mixes French because obviously he comes from Belgium. He mixes French with English. So of course it pays to sort of have the pronunciation correct for both the French and the English elements. And some people may pronounce words differently. So for example, you'll see more often than not, it's in video games, but you'll see that when someone says something like, for instance, they come from an area like Somerset and they talk like, oh, welcome down here. When they're saying something like that, it sort of, um, as you would write it, you would sort of have an apostrophe when you use the word here. Because they say down here, you would use an apostrophe above the E and get rid of the H to sort of emphasize that point that that's how they pronounce that word. And it's the same, the more sort of, dare I use the term, common, you have in the dialect. And then, of course, the third aspect to dialect, which you can have, is the foreign element, but more of an ancient foreign. So, for instance, using Google Translate is not always effective. Uh, we see this in an episode of those of you who enjoy regular show. Um, there's an episode where, I think it's called More Smarter, where Mordecai and Rigby discover like it's like a medicinal drink that increases your intelligence and i think it's called brain max and they end up drinking so much of it that they start speaking in latin and there's a moment where mordecai and rigby they both turn around mordecai's like quorum he fitio moriatus and then rigby turns around and says moriatus moriatus insubate rem totem and then mordecai replies adherum viserit irastultum now that's all well and good because to us, to the to the normal person, it sounds like they're just spewing off Latin. But people have actually gone back and researched what they've said. And it doesn't make sense when you translate it to English because you're using a language that is, in essence, 2,000 years old. It's a dead language. So Google Translate translates it to something like, you stupid, they can't understand us now because too smart. It's like a robot trying to pronounce in English. It, it doesn't make sense when it's translated. So that's always the issue when using Google Translate. But obviously, the thing to bear in mind is that we don't have actual sources. And it's difficult enough to learn Latin, let alone ancient Latin, enough to know how to use it in dialect. One thing you can do if you do decide to use a historical backdrop, as we do with our books, is not so much to go too much into ye old English or too much into the ancient dialect, but just to have a few words dotted about here and there. So it gives that sort of atmospheric feeling, but it's not trying too much that you're just opening yourself up for mistakes. Okay, as mentioned, this episode will be continued in the following episode where we discuss dialogue. So that about wraps it up for this section. And that's it for episode four. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for making us a part of your day. It means a lot to us that you would tune in episode after episode, day after day, week after week, specifically just to get something out of these episodes. Of course, we'll endeavour to include any of the links mentioned in this episode in the description below so that you have access to any and all founts of information that have been mentioned in this episode. Right now, we're just going to take some time 
to give a shout out to a project conducted by a personal friend of mine, Callum Young, known as Top Dog Studios. It's a sign painting and mural company which specializes in graphic design and handcrafted artwork for representing a company's particular brand. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in or something that you know someone who has a business who's looking to have their brand represented would be interested in, head on over to Top Dog Studios website at www.topdogstudios, that's lowercase letters, .co.uk. There you'll find sections where you can put your name, your email address, your phone number. You can tell Callum a little bit about the project. And then there's additional sections where you can put your budget and the time scale in which you want it completed. So if you're looking for a completely professional way to have your brand represented by an artist who specializes in painting and graphic design, head on over to Top Dog Studios and I'm sure Callum will be more than happy to take an interest in your project. Okay guys, that pretty much sums it up for this episode. So once again, thank you very much for being a part of it, making us a part of your day, and I hope you enjoy the rest of it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you next time.